0: Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Steven Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Last night we had a major movie premiere downtown for the new film Detroit. It's the latest in a series of events around town that are part of a weeks or maybe months long remembrance of the 50th anniversary. Of the 1967 uprising. Author and historian Thomas Segrou has been in Detroit for several days helping to lead conversations about the uprising, about Detroit's economic and social strife, and of course about race. He wrote what many people consider to be the definitive work on Detroit's ascension and its decline and how all of those things, all of the things that we have experienced here in Detroit, especially over the last 50 or 60 years, are framed by Race and Inequality. The title of that book was The Origins of the Urban Crisis, Race and Inequality in Postwar Detroit. And we want to spend the hour today talking with that author, Thomas Segrew, a historian at New York University and, of course, author of that book. Tom, welcome to Detroit Today.
1: It's great to be back here,
0: Stephen. Yes, it's, it's great to see you here in Detroit. Uh, and as I said in the open, you have been here for several days taking part in the 67 anniversary uh, events. Uh, you were at the premiere last night of Detroit. I was not. I opted out. I've had enough of uh, of this anniversary at this point. And uh, I sat at home and watched some of the, th- the the pictures come over on Twitter and 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 other social media. First, tell me what that was like. This this huge premiere of a movie that looks back at a very painful. Episode in Detroit, and one that most people I feel like don't know all that much about.
1: Well, the night had two different dimensions to it. One was Hollywood spectacle, which you don't see on the streets of Detroit that often. (laughs) Ever. Ever. (laughs) 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 Folks out uh, dressed to the nines, limos parked uh, up and down (laughs) the street, uh, uh, big lines, lots of photographers, uh, celebrities. Uh, But despite the celebratory atmosphere, the film was. Intense um, and unremitting in its depiction of uh, the chaos on the streets in the summer of 1967, and especially of the horrific events at the Algiers Motel. Um, Catherine Bigelow does violence. Yes. Uh, that's her. That's <laughs> she loves her, that. Yeah, and and in a way that is unsettling and captures viscerally the what it must have been like to be in the Algiers Motel while um, the. Uh, patrons were being terrorized, yeah. literally terrorized by that's the, three the word police that officers. I've that I've
0: heard more than any. Uh, I talked with Michelle Martin, the weekend host of All things Considered last week, and she had seen a preview of the movie and she she kept using that word terror, the terror that these teenagers, these black teenagers experienced over several several hours in this in this motel. Uh, she said the, the the movie conveys that as much as the stark violence this sort of psychological terror that they underwent definitely
1: I mean it's um the the fear the the horror the sense of utter helplessness at the hands of um, of these I mean to say thuggish is to understate the case I mean these really sadistic violent uh, officers who um, raided the ho- raided the motel um, and I mean I would say the weakness of the film is um, while it conveys that sense of terror and that, that, the, the violence uh, of, uh, of the Algiers Motel, the characters weren't very well-developed. They were very superficial, um, and I would like to have seen more. You get glimpses at, at, at a moment, um, but you don't really get into um, how, how folks um, thought about, talked about, experienced it, and you especially don't get any insight into the lead police officer um, – uh, Senac or he mm-hmm. was known at the time and we don't hear this in the film snake yeah. um, he was had a reputation of being a very uh psychologically fraught guy and it would have been very interesting to have him um, fleshed out a little bit um, and rather than being a single character but also the african american characters the uh, the 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 young men uh, who were members of the singing troupe were a little bit too cardboard cut out for yeah. for my taste i yeah. mean she's really not interested ultimately in um, develop, rich development of character. She's interested as a filmmaker in in um, conveying the, 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 the extraordinary um, dehumanization that people are capable of, especially when they're racist.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> how important do you think that kind of depiction is around the whole idea of 67? We're looking back. We have been looking back for months at that week in July of, of 1967 for a long time in in this city, I feel like we have had a sort of sterile uh, view of of what happened or a simplistic view of of what happened. How important is it to to sort of drop something like this movie into the conversation 50 years later to sort of maybe shock people into a discussion that's a little more frank and honest?
1: Well,, um We historians and some native Detroiters remember the Algiers motel incident, but it's not a household name. Um, It's not something that's remembered by most. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, I I was in an audience that I I assume consisted mostly of people from Detroit or the metropolitan Detroit area, and folks gasped, and it was clear that many didn't know what was going to happen next. Um, So for people who are watching this film who know nothing about nineteen sixty-seven. Um, who've never heard of the Algiers Motel? Um, this this film will be pretty shocking.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, what about the conversation that we've had over the last few days? As you've been here over the last weeks and months, do you do you feel like we're in a better place to be able to discuss these things than than we have been uh, ten years ago, or twenty years ago, or thirty years ago?
1: Absolutely. Um, I think. Uh, the most important factor contributing to the openness of conversation about what happened in 67 is um, the national discussion launched by the incidents of police brutality in places like Ferguson and mm-hmm. Charleston and Baltimore and Chicago and in Staten Island. And I could go on in the sad litany of, of brutal events Minneapolis. Um, uh, Black Lives Matter put this issue front and center in the national public consciousness in a way that it hasn't been arguably since uh, the 1960s and 1970s. And yeah. so this film um, makes real what, at least to probably the white audience who are going to watch this, um, the meaning of, of harassment and brutality. I mean, you see it. Crystal clear in, in a shocking way. Um, yes, of course, we see it crystal clear in a shocking way in the in in the films, uh, uh, the videos, the handheld camera videos of of um, the police doing beatings or the body cameras. But this, in some ways, makes it even more raw um, and and more urgent. So, uh, one hope that I have of the film is that it does um, maybe open the eyes of some folks to to how deep that reality is and how scarring a long history of, uh, of brutality and harassment is. Yeah.
0: Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Thomas Segrew. He is a historian at New York University and author of The Origins of the Urban Crisis, Race and Inequality in Post-War Detroit. We are talking about the anniversary of the 67th Uh, Uprising here in Detroit which happened over the weekend. We're talking about the premiere of the film Detroit which looks back at the Algiers Motel incident which happened during the uprising and we are talking about race and inequality and how they frame life in Detroit and other places now. Uh, based on history, based on the history of race, uh, racism and inequality in cities like Detroit. If you want to join the conversation and have a question for Tom, uh, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, and you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, I would love for us uh, to have a conversation today about race and why it matters or why you think it doesn't matter. I think that's an important voice in the conversation as well. If you think we are talking too much about race during this uh, 50th anniversary of the sixty-seven uprising. Give us a call as well and tell us why you believe that. Why are we making uh, too much of that, uh, Tom? Your your work, uh, of course, frames the the discussion this morning from from my point of view in in the sense that it roots the things that we are dealing with in Detroit today very firmly in. Uh, a, a documented past and it's not just uh, that you say i think this is about race you show over and over and over uh, in your book how race framed the things that that uh, that produced the modern day Detroit the book is divided into three parts arsenal rust and fire um talk about how those three parts sort of move together to, to, to get us to this place where we are understanding how race and inequality produced the Detroit we see today?
1: Um, I begin the book by looking at Detroit as the extraordinary capital of American capitalism, right? Uh, the home of the most powerful industry in the United States. I mean, at its peak, the auto industry directly or indirectly employed one in every six working Americans. Mm-hmm. And um, folks immigrated to Detroit from Um, The far corners of the world, from Lebanon and Palestine, from Poland, from Germany, from Britain and Scotland, uh, um, and also uh, from um, Appalachia and particularly from the Deep South. African Americans came north looking for opportunity in the auto industry. Um, And they came to Detroit also, you could say, as refugees from the violent system of Jim Crow and brutal uh, segregation in the South. And they came to Detroit with great expectations—expectations expectations that the jobs would be there and opportunity would grow, expectations that they would be free of uh, the everyday hassles, the indignities, the violence of the of, of, of Jim Crow, of Jim Crow and, and Dixie. Okay. Um, and what they found was much more of a mixed bag. Um, yes, Detroit was a, a place of extraordinary opportunity, and during World War II, African Americans moved in record numbers into the auto industry and. Detroit had one of the biggest, uh, you could say, well-off black working classes in the United States as a result of uh, auto industry jobs. They were unionized. They had good benefits. um, They allowed folks to buy their own homes, um, which is uh, a, a dream of a lot of folks migrating to cities like Detroit. But they also found they were trapped because of persistent discrimination in the bottom tier jobs, the worst jobs, Working in the paint room where paint fumes would surround you and 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 really injure you over time, uh, or lifting engines. Engines used to be lifted by hand and mm-hmm. put into cars, and um, the the job was nicknamed "man killing" because it was so tough, right? And those were the jobs that African Americans worked in, or the foundries, right? You're standing in front of this huge furnace uh, belching uh, flames and ashes and and, <laughs> and 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 heat, and it's 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 terrible work, and it was it was the the quote unquote. Black work or Negro work. Yes. Uh, in, it was the only the work past. you could get. It's the only work you could get, right? And even then, um, when uh, whites showed up, often black, qualified black uh, would be employees got turned away at the hiring hall because um, whites still had priority. And so that was frustrating, right? You come expecting that you're going to get this economic opportunity, and often the doors are slammed or you end up in a backbreaking job. Um, then you combine what else happens during that period, which is um African Americans need housing in Detroit, uh, and they're they're stuck in a few neighborhoods walled off not by signs that say, you know um, white only, but by practices that are in many respects even more efficient and more pernicious, more pernicious than saying white only. And uh, that means there's massive overcrowding in the African-American neighborhoods in Detroit uh, and at a moment when the housing stock is getting old and deteriorating and, uh, it's really hard for African-Americans to break into white neighborhoods, and this is the, you know, one of the central and shocking stories that I uncovered when I wrote that book. Um, I found more than 200 violent incidents uh, that accompanied the movement of the first or second African-American families into white neighborhoods, yes. mostly totally wiped out of our memories, right, where uh, whites would always break windows. That was an easy thing to do. You could hurl a brick through a, a window in the middle of the night, but they sometimes tore down porches. They sometimes lit fires. They sometimes... You know, one one woman, a white woman, an older woman, put salt all over the lawn of her new black neighbors so that um, she'd say, "You're not wanted here." Um, and so, all these incidents, um, you could say, were you know the um, the, the tinder or the arsenal that, that, that um, made possible the the ongoing struggles. Mm-hmm. Um, rust, right? Detroit was uh, a major manufacturing center, yet during the nineteen fifties. Decades before Japanese and European auto competition, Detroit began losing jobs. Yes, big time. Um, between 1948 <clears throat> and 1963, Detroit lost more than 130,000 jobs. And this was not when Detroit was a basket case right. uh, economically. <laughs> this is not when the auto industry was struggling. It was. It was didn't have competition. Rather, were, the auto companies and suppliers were moving to low wage parts of the country and world, um, and that. Um, happened just as African Americans were getting a toehold right. in
0: the in the industry. And fire is the third
1: and fire is, you know, the 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 unremitting history of white on black violence and ultimately the explosion in 1967. Essentially what I'm arguing is you can't see 67 as this thing that just burst everyone lost from, their minds. Everyone early. lost their minds a right. collective delusion for a moment. Yeah. It grew out of decades of unaddressed Uh, problems of anger, but also of of a sense of hope and opportunity. Folks wanted to get what they believed they deserved and they were being denied.
0: Yeah. Uh, So you published this book in 1987. So 20 years. 97. (laughs) 97. I'm sorry. uh, 30 years after the 67 uprising. What was the reaction then? Uh, We were in a really different place about this whole conversation then. People were not thinking about race in the same way.
1: The conventional wisdom about 1967 in when my book came out went something like this. Detroit was great. And then the riot happened. (laughs) And then all the whites left and Capitol left and Detroit went downhill and black radicals took over the city government and and drove it uh, to its demise, right? It's a very simple explanation that saw 67 as the Core explanation. That's still a pretty deeply held explanation of, but that totally ignores the fact that Detroit had been losing lots of population and lots of jobs well before '67, and had been uh, a cauldron of racial conflict. Also, um, I mean, the other kind of conventional wisdom I would say that held until pretty recently was, um, let's, we know this happened, but but we want to move past it. Mm-hmm. Let, let's let's just not talk <laughs> about it, right? That's it's too painful. It's too it's hindering our, our, our forward progress. Let's that's, that's kind of sweep it under the rug. Um, just as, you know, maybe um, a family with a, a violent or alcoholic member might say, well, if we don't talk about um, right. dad that way, then then maybe it will just take care of itself. People will still think we're respectable. And and uh, and so there's that, those two sides that really played out that hindered our understanding of why Detroit is the Detroit that we live in today yes. and um, how we can maybe begin
0: to think about it addressing some of the root issues and 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 um, moving forward. Yeah, uh, one of the things I find really interesting about sixty seven is that you do have this delusion about it not being something we want to talk about or deal with for a very long time, but that del- but that that delusion is common not just among whites who were here. It is common among some African Americans and I can say as someone who grew up here in the 1970s and 1980s the 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 uprising was was in my household in the household I grew up in something we didn't talk a whole lot about uh, we heard about it every once in a while uh, but it was never it was never discussed as the reason that things were the way they were uh, in, in in sort of in in modern times uh, even this weekend, talking with my mother, who was I think 25 or 26 years old at the time the uprising happened, and I was telling her about the marker that they, are, that they put at 12th and Claremont now, Rosa Parks and, and Claremont. She was uncomfortable with the idea of commemorating that. She was uncomfortable with the idea of reminding people that that happened there. And, and I think that's not, that's not uncommon among, among African-Americans of that generation.
1: Definitely. I mean, the one thing that interviews have shown, especially oral histories of participants, witnesses, observers uh, of 1967, is that there was a wide variety of different opinion on what was happening, right? And so there were folks who um, uh, cheered when uh, they saw uh, the— Indelible images of people breaking windows and Mm -hmm. tossing Molotov cocktails, (laughs) and there were folks who said, "This is going to set us back. I mean, this is this is or you know this this is immoral. We shouldn't be doing this sort of thing, right?" And so the the conflicted feelings about, um, and also look, I mean, I mean, for African American Detroiters especially, I mean, there's a long history of a tradition of. Respectability, right? Yes. We want to be respectable. We want yes. to show our best face to white America or to each other. Um, and the riots are anything but respectable. The uprising is anything but respectable. It's a rebellion. It's a it's a it's a it's profound a challenge. It's a pushback, a profound challenge to the status quo. And rebellion uh, is um n- disturbing um, to its targets but also to to to, to folks my, uh, many folks who are witnessing it yeah
0: yeah again this is detroit today on 1019 WDET I'm Stephen Henderson my guest is Tom Sugrue historian at New York University author of The Origins of the Urban Crisis Race and Inequality in Postwar Detroit we are talking about that work we are also talking about the 50th anniversary of the 67 uprising and talking about Race, how race and inequality frame Detroit today based on the role that they have played historically in this city and in others around the country. You want to join the conversation, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also join the conversation on the WDET Facebook page or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work you in. Let's go to Darlene in Detroit Arlene, welcome to Detroit today.
2: Good morning. Good hey. morning, Mr. Segrou. Good morning, Stephen. Yes. Um, <clears throat> Mr. Segrou, I, I just want you to know it's such an honor and a pleasure to be able to speak this morning and share my story. Uh, I was born in uh, May 1965 in Detroit, mm-hmm. and I do recall the riots, believe it or not. <laughs> um, my uh, we, we lived uh, in the Shane Park downtown area. And um, we were in the car and we were leaving home. I don't know where we were going, but I remember a police officer on a horse stopping us and saying, Where are you going? And my dad said, I'm going to get my baby some milk. And I, you know, didn't realize what he was saying, but the officer said, No, you're not. You're going back home. Hmm. And we had to turn around and go right back home. And I was, what, one and a half, two years old, and that is a memory that has stayed with me. Many years later, in 2003, wow. I worked with the City of Detroit Law Department, and I had a great boss, Phil Brown, who is like, still a good friend, He gave me an autographed copy of your book, (laughs) Uh, not to keep, (laughs) 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 but to read uh, because we shared many memories of our community uh, where um, he grew up and where I grew up. Uh, My dad used to make me take uh, Irma Henderson's groceries up because she lived <laughs> in our community where they didn't have elevator. That's funny. So I had to help with the groceries and she'd always give me a piece of candy.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: no, that's great. Uh,
2: yeah. So, but he, Mr. Mr. Brown, um, considers you a, a fantastic authority on the history of Detroit. And we keep in touch. And uh, instead of asking me how I'm doing, he asks how his book is doing. <laughs> <laughs> Darlene,
0: thanks very much for, for the call and for sharing uh, for sharing your story. I, I, I was going to say before we even started, um, you have many, many fans here in Detroit. And I would imagine that many of them are the folks waiting to talk to you here on on the phones. but, uh, but what strikes me about Darlene's story is how young she was when that happened, and it's still a memory. And I think mm-hmm. that speaks to sometimes we want to say that this was not the this was not the turning point in. Detroit. And in many ways, it wasn't. It wasn't the beginning of population loss. It wasn't the beginning of economic decline. But psychologically, there is something about that week that I think changed us all as Detroiters.
1: Definitely. I mean, uh, I don't want to be too psychological about it. But you know, I I was a kid in Detroit on the west side. Mm -hmm. uh, And uh, um, you could say maybe my interest in the city began um, at the moment on my fifth birthday, July 24th. When I my parents took me um, a half block down from my house on Asbury Park to Fenkel, uh, where National Guard vehicles were parading by, and for a five year old boy, whoa! I mean, you know, jeeps, <laughs> tanks, personnel yes, carriers. <laughs> right. I had no idea of the significance of my city essentially being occupied yeah. by uh, by military forces. But um, but that was an indelible image. That I, I I still have. I can still see those vehicles going by, and uh, um, and. For many folks living in the city, there are touchstone moments. Those yeah. touchstone moments might be um, someone yesterday told me about her recollection of the smell of smoke, right? That whenever she smells smoke, she immediately she flashes, flashes back. back to 1967.
0: Wow. Wow. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Tom Sagru. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones, 313 577 1019. We'll be right back on Detroit today.
2: WDET, bringing you culture and information that empowers our community.
0: Every day
4: on 1019
0: WDET, Detroit's public radio station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining in. My guest today is Tom Segrew. He is a historian at New York University and author of The Origins of the Urban Crisis, Race and Inequality in Postwar Detroit. We are talking about his book. We're talking about his work, his outlook on why we see the things that we do in cities like Detroit Today and their roots in the racism and inequality uh, in our past. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Tom, I want to start this uh, segment talking about... What comparisons you might draw between uh, the urban renewal programs we saw here in Detroit and other cities across the country in the the middle part of the 20th century and the things that we're seeing happen in Detroit now. There's a lot of excitement in Detroit right now about things that are happening in, in certain areas of the city, but there's also a lot of anxiety, I think, uh, about who those things are for and whether they'll benefit most of the people who live here. And I hear a lot of people draw comparisons to the things that went on, government-sponsored uh, uh, urban renewal programs that ultimately were very bad for poor communities, but especially bad for poor black communities. What, what, what comparisons do you draw there? Uh,
1: the commonly... Um used phrase to describe urban renewal in Detroit and other cities was urban renewal equals Negro removal. Um, And we saw that um, crystal clear playing out in Detroit. Um, The old Black Bottom neighborhood, uh, which was the center, the historic center of African-American Detroit, Mm -hmm. was bulldozed away for the construction of what would become Lafayette Park. Mm -hmm. Um, Paradise Valley, which was from the great migration in the late teens and 1920s, the downtown of black Detroit, right? It was the place where you went to hear music. It was a place where you stayed in hotels. It was a place you shopped. It's a place where you ran into to friends uh, when you went out to eat. Um, it was obliterated for the construction of what would be I-375, or the, you know, that, that part of the Chrysler Freeway there. Sure. Um, wiped out. Um, the area just to the uh, surrounding Wayne State and, and and the the hospital complexes, the medical center, uh, was obliterated, bulldozed away for the uh, um, for for urban renewal. The, mm-hmm. the argument was, we're getting rid of blight, right? Blight, of course, is a metaphor that comes from you know, a <laughs> disease of plants, right? In other words, a, you get some blight, you're going to kill the whole plant, right? right? And so, and but was it coincidental that? Almost all of the areas that were considered to be blighted um, had African-American faces uh, on the sidewalks and uh, in the streets? No. Right. So um, that process um, led to real significant displacement. Um, But more than that, right, I think maybe one of the most um, unremarked on but most important effects of urban renewal was it wiped out a whole generation of fledgling African-American owned businesses. Yes. Um, You've got... uh, cleaners or a neighborhood bar on, in Paradise Valley, and you can't just pick it up and start over three miles away and have your client base and have all the trust that you've built in the community, you're wiped out, right? There's a whole generation of black business people, black capitalists that are are, are decimated by uh, what happens in the urban renewal period, and um, a lot of them never really rebounded from that as yeah. a consequence. And so there's a lot of trauma, in other words, in the in the process of, uh, of urban renewal. And because there wasn't really a lot of effort putting into helping people who were evicted find new places to live, it led to, especially in the first few years after urban renewal projects and condemnation happened, folks overcrowding in other neighborhoods in the city, doubling up, moving into houses that were... Um, themselves often deteriorating because they didn't have any choice, right? You're pushing them out onto a housing market that doesn't have a lot of options for African Americans, and um, so it's 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 pretty devastating. Uh,
0: and and are we seeing that similarly play out today? Do you think in Detroit with the the tension between who's benefiting, the tension around what happens in neighborhoods that are. More predominantly black uh, than than neighborhoods have been historically here in Detroit. Is it, is that a fair comparison? Um,
1: I, I think his, drawing historical analogies is is, is risky. I mm-hmm. mean, it's different <laughs> um, in lots of ways. Um, there's been displacement um, as a consequence of um, the gentrification and revival of Detroit. Mm-hmm. Um, folks who were renting, in particular, in parts of Midtown and um, some parts of downtown, although not a lot of residents uh, and residential units there, um, have, have lost their apartments um, or homes as a result of the escalating value of real estate. Yes. Um, and um, I think, though, the one of the stories of what's happening now is the ways in which a lot of capital, um, a lot of resources are going into a very small section of the city, seven-ish square miles or so, 7.2 square miles. Um, Detroit's 139 square miles. Yes, yes. And the story in most of those 139 square miles isn't displacement. Um, it's neglect. It's uh, the continued uh, devaluation of properties. It's tax foreclosures and massive evictions. It's um, commercial districts that are a shell, a husk of what they used to be. Um, it's it's um, uh, the misallocation of resources, you could say. Um, I mean, the, the transformations that have been wrought in Detroit in recent years are great for people like you and me, right? Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. there are more good restaurants, more cool <laughs> bars, more stuff to uh, do, right? more <laughs> stuff to do than 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 in my adult lifetime, but. We often assume, and we, I mean, policymakers, ordinary citizens, developers, that somehow the benefits of, uh, of this renewal are going to trickle down and benefit folks in other parts of the city. But if you go, like I did a, you know, a, a week or two ago, over to Mound, Nevada, yeah, um, right. if you go uh, you know, uh, to within a few blocks of 12th and Claremont, um, you're not seeing in a very clear way um, <laughs> any positive benefits yeah. of, of that.
0: Well, and the people who live in those places are starting to notice that. I mean, they're starting to see that, hey, this is not helping me, this has not changed anything in the neighborhood where I live. And at the same time, I see on television, I see on social media, or I can go downtown and look for myself and see all of this progressive sort of change that's happening in the city. I mean, there's an understandable, I think, anxiety about being left out.
1: Absolutely. Um, One of the areas where I think that's really clear in Detroit is um, we have this new wonderful Street rail going from midtown to downtown, sure. uh, the Q line, and uh, I love public transit. Um, Detroit needs a lot more public <laughs> transit more, than it has. Right? <laughs> but go over to uh, I don't know uh, Wyoming and Fenkel and, uh, and try w- to catch a bus. Try to catch a bus. Um, you, there might not even be a bus stop. You might have uh you know some some, some tires and a, and a board, right? Uh, and you've got to stand around and wait for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And for folks living around there and for folks living in a lot of the city, remember that we're the motor city, but a significant segment of the city's population doesn't have access to reliable cars. Yeah. You need good transit, and we don't have it. Yeah. And I know planners are beginning to work on that, and I hope the, there's, a, there's a fire to, um, to really improve transit. But the transit links and then between Detroit and the suburbs are abysmal. Yeah,
0: it's um, impossible. If you have a job out in the suburbs— it's really impossible for, in a lot of cases, to get to work every day if you're relying on on public transit. We just have not built the infrastructure to make that possible. Okay, again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number on the phones to join the conversation with Tom Segrew, historian at New York University, author of "The Origins of the Urban Crisis: Race and Inequality in Postwar Detroit." Let's go to Michael in Farmington Hills. Michael, welcome to Detroit today. Uh, good
3: morning, gentlemen. Hey, Stephen and um, Mr. Shiguru, um, thank you so much. I, I'm having such a revelation listening to your conversation about our, our uh, region. Um, the thing that just keeps resonating for me is that nothing seems to fail quite like success. The <laughs> auto industry was so phenomenally successful, it's, it's kind of driven a lot of work that might otherwise be here in southeastern Michigan away from here because it, it just couldn't economically compete with the kind of money that was generated in our auto industry. So um, Detroit has kind of been left in in a vacuum where um, a lot of work that might have come here has gone away. And certainly a lot of the the, the economic activity that was in the city prior to the, the riots, it all disappeared during that, that period in 19, uh, late 1960s, 1970s when white flight just emptied the city of, of economic activity and businesses and jobs. And, and to this day, we're still struggling trying to recover that, that economic, from that economic loss. So I think I'm eager to, to read the, the author's book, but I'm also um, interested in finding out what he thinks about the question of what that loss how you could quantify that loss, what the city might look like if instead of having racism as its core, that we would have people that invested in in the city and the the labor market in the wow. city. And
0: Michael, that's, <laughs> a, that's a really profound question. I'm glad you called and asked it. I, I'm also eager to hear, Tom, what uh, what you think. How would we quantify that?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, we can quantify it in the most straightforward way, which is looking at the numbers of kind of before and after. And you know, I would say just a, a quick aside, um, off of your question, that Detroit really started losing jobs in a huge way before 1967, yeah. right? So 67 was was in the middle of that process of of the flight of capital and of people away from the city. It, it wasn't the, it wasn't the start. Um, the 70s, of course, didn't do a lot of good to Detroit, um, particularly as globalization and the oil crisis uh, really hurt the auto industry. But one thing that we, um, that we have seen, I want to I put maybe a, a slightly different spin on this just for a moment. Mm-hmm. There, there have been a few bright spots um, since the 1960s, and perhaps the most significant one is every major old industrial city, including Detroit, saw a significant growth in uh, meds and eds, that is hospitals and yes. higher education um, and in public employment. And if you look at the census data, if you look at what kinds of jobs people living in Detroit in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, especially African-Americans, had, they were jobs in those sectors. And those sectors created an African-American middle class. Um, a really good book by Michael Katz, who's a, my late colleague at the University of Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. showed that in, in 2000, the 2000 census showed about 40% of African-American middle class people had jobs in um, the public sector or in contractors that were doing work for the public sector. In other words, public employment really matters. Of course, that's the kind of employment now that's on the rocks as a result of state and, and federal um, budget cuts. But it's it, without it, Detroit wouldn't have had the pr- still pretty substantial African-American middle class that it has and in the suburbs. So there's a bright side, I guess you could say, to the the, the that disappearance of manufacturing jobs. But it's not enough. We need to think about economic strategies that um, – to 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 create a more diverse range of job opportunities and you know the healthcare sector I think is a really good example of yeah. that right everyone from orderlies and and janitors to neurosurgeons and you know data managers um, you know there it's a really wide range of jobs and they're good jobs and that's a sector that you know assuming there aren't massive cuts to to, to federal funding for for hospitals is still question up for grabs. <laughs> um, those are the kinds of jobs that, that can, um, I think, play a really critical role because we're getting we're, the population is getting older, um, right. and um, healthcare uh, as a sector um, is has been growing pretty steadily for the last several years. And it's
0: it's interesting to think of it that way. I, I I guess I don't often think of it that way. That that what you need is growth in an economic sector that provides economic diversity of opportunity. Right, as you point out, a, a neurosurgeon. Is benefiting as much from the growth in meds and eds as as somebody who is a you know a tech in the in the in the lab, um, and and there's a big difference between those two people.
1: Totally, I would also say um, hospitals and and healthcare are more geographically rooted, right? An auto plant can pick up from Detroit and move to Tennessee, right? A hospital can't pick up from. Uh, you know, from from, Grand, from uh, West Grand Boulevard and the Lodge and move to Tennessee, right? Uh, those places stay. And there's actually been, I mean, I think one of the more promising developments in Detroit in the last uh, few years, particularly after the bankruptcy, have been city planning efforts to try to um, re-energize the neighborhoods, right, say, or right around Henry Ford Hospital, um, right around the Detroit Medical Center, um, as a way of... Um, providing good access to good jobs for people and using those anchor institutions as a way to to um, continue to um, revitalize city neighborhoods. I think that's really, really important.
0: Yeah. Uh, let's take another quick break here. and We'll come back and continue our conversation with Tom Sagru And of course, we want to hear more from you. 313 577 1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back on the drink today. listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Tom Segrew. He's a historian at New York University, author of The Origins of the Urban Crisis, Race and Inequality in Postwar Detroit. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, give us a call, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, or go to Twitter. And hashtag Detroit Today will work you into the conversation. Tom, I want to start this segment off with a, a quote from from our Facebook page. Rob St. Mary on Facebook says, I always wondered if a truth and reconciliation commission would help us. Did it work in South Africa? Truth and reconciliation, of course, is a long process that they went through in, in South Africa after the end of apartheid. We've seen some I think small scale efforts at that here in the United states do you put much faith in that kind of process to get us to the place we need to be on all these issues
1: um I would say i'm I'm for opening up conversation and um, giving people the opportunity to to be heard uh, about their past uh, I think it's I think it's a really important process it's it's necessary but certainly not sufficient but um we don't gain anything um, by sweeping this stuff under the rug and pretending it didn't happen. Um, and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, as I understand it in South Africa, and I'm no expert on it, but, but as I understand it from a sort of a outsider's perspective, um, played a really critical role in both allowing folks who had been voiceless, right, who had been um, terrorized, victimized, exploited, by the South African apartheid regime to to have their stories heard and be out there, and that can be that can be a really good first step in, in folks coming to terms with their their own past. Um, but it can also shed light on what the apartheid regime, and you could say also what what racists uh, in Detroit and in America for much of our history want us to do, which is to wish it away, right? If only, you know, if we don't talk about it, the argument often goes, and then, you know, it'll be okay. You know, it's, it's let's, not, let's not dwell on painful things. But you know what? We have to dwell on painful things if we're going to
0: overcome them. Yeah. Uh, Robert on Facebook says something pertinent to that point. He says, part of the problem is that racism, as white people understand it, means wearing a robe and burning crosses. A lot of quote, polite conversation has racist undertones, and white people need to own up to that. Uh, Let's go to Tim in Detroit. Tim, welcome to Detroit Today.
4: Uh, Hi, uh, uh, Tom Segrew. Listen, um, we we videotaped a couple of of your lectures a few years ago, so I know your views. But my, my question to you is, you think differently from a lot of white folks. How did you come by your views? <laughs> I mean, what, what, yeah, what happened to you, background? Tom? <laughs> well, no, we're still here, uh, yeah. Detroit IPTV, We're still here. But, well, how did you come by your views? How? Did yeah, no, uh, the Tim did you have the courage. Yeah, no, to, I know who this yourself is,
0: Tim. I'm glad incredible. you. I'm glad you called. Uh, uh, he runs a, a, a local cable mm-hmm. uh, a television show, but but uh, that's a great question. What is it about? Your background or your experiences that leads you to this space in a way that that is really in contrast with uh, i think where a lot of white people are in terms of this conversation
1: uh i I don't know if I can attribute to any one <laughs> single factor but look i lived uh in on the west side um as the neighborhood was undergoing a really significant racial mm-hmm. transformation uh, Bagley neighborhood is that? Uh, right? no I lived in asbury park asbury near greenfield park. and fenkel okay. uh and uh um The first African American family moved in in 1970. The second African American family moved in shortly thereafter. The second family, their kids were my best friends um, in a critical formative year of my of my, my childhood, you know formative several years. Mm-hmm. Um, um, interesting family. Um, she was a school teacher. he was a cop. Uh, he was a member of Stress. Uh, wow! Yeah, um, it, there's a whole backstory there. It's <laughs> yeah, pretty right. interesting we too. We could have a whole hour uh, or show on that. Totally. Um, but um, their kids were my best friends, and my dad played a role in integrating um, St. Mary's of Redford, the elementary school that we attended. Huh. Um, and the, the, the Martin kids, their family name was Martin, were the among the first African American kids in what was an all white school. So my my dad's example was part of what what um, brought me there. But um, we moved as many white Detroiters did, um, mm-hmm. to Farmington. And as I went to school in Farmington, and as I really started becoming a, kind of an aware of the world, I read newspapers avidly as a kid. Um, my, my white classmates in, in middle school and, or junior high school and high school um, would just spout out this stuff about Detroit, about black people, and mm-hmm. about how bad it was and how they never went there. And I'm like, wait, I live there. You know, I had, I had experience, my experience, uh, you know, in, in a racially mixed neighborhood in Northwest Detroit was not what you, I'm hearing from you guys whatsoever, right? Yeah. So I began to think critically about that sort of stuff, even as a kid. And then, you know, I started studying urban history. Um, I went to college in New York because I wanted to be in a big city. Um, and, and that was a rough time in New York, too. And I, <laughs> I, I absorbed it like a sponge, and I read, and I read, and I read. And then I came back to Detroit, and I did what good historians do. I went to the archives. I went to the newspapers. I went to the records of civil rights organizations, the African-American press, uh, police records. And the story that I tell is not just growing out of my own kind of gut instincts or, or political impulses. It grows yeah. from encountering again and again on the pages of, of my 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 sources, my research, um,
0: fact, fact yes.
1: um, overwhelming evidence uh, that— um, that, that that you know, of, of Detroit's history. And so you could say there's a kind of a personal connection and a, and a, and a research agenda that kind of, you know, personal connection to propel me to the research. The research um, led me to be able to make the kinds of statements you're hearing from me now.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's quickly go back to the phones here. Jamal in Midtown, or I'm sorry, Jamal in Detroit. Welcome to Detroit oh, Good morning, gentlemen. Hey.
4: I'd just like to make a small comment, small question for y'all guests. Mm-hmm. I would like to know how much research when you were doing your research, how much information did you run across on how young black men selling heroin during the late 60s played a part in two of the black crime, which made the city in a bad way, even 50 years later. to so how it is now? I've, I've worked in a methadone clinic for five years. I never was a user. And a lot of the information that I got from a lot of the clients came from um, their withdrawal symptoms, which caused them to have the problems to commit, into committing crime. So I'd just like to know, how much Hmm. info did you run across when it came to doing your research on uh, the black crime
0: during the late 60s? Hmm. Jamal, great question. Thanks for calling and asking. Go ahead.
1: Very good question. Well, um, you know, as 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 you know, we're in uh, a huge crisis right now with opioids with and, opioids, and yes. heroin. Um, and the story that's playing out right now is not dissimilar from the one that played out in Detroit in the late 1960s, which is you have a lot of folks who are really disaffected, um, who are traumatized by various things that are happening um, in their communities, in their lives, and um, for a subset of them uh, the golden spike, as they called it, you know, heroin is a, it was a, was a way to escape, was a way to anesthetize yourself from the from from the pain, um, uh, devastating with devastating consequences. Um, also, as the city's economy crumbled away, um, for again a subset of the population, it's not that big a subset, but big enough to be visible and have an impact on neighborhood life. Um, Selling, dealing, trading became uh, a, a way of getting by, surviving, of making ends meet, sure. of surviving, and 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 sometimes of getting respect um, on the streets. And the combination of those two that that addiction, that insatiable hunger uh, for uh, for um, for heroin um, and 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 other and other drugs, and the the expansion of a market, um, both of those I think had devastating consequences. Yeah.
0: Uh, let's take uh, Harold in Midtown. Harold, welcome to Detroit today. We've got about two minutes left. Harold, oh, I, I get just you have in. a comment. Go I, look ahead. At
4: the, I was 12 years old when the riots hit, and I was I look at the positive things happening in the riot. We got more involved. More blacks got on the police force, fire force, fire, fire department. We got involved in um, politics, other things, different jobs for black women. And a person like yourself didn't have a radio show back then. That's, That's all I have to say. Thank
0: you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right, Harold, uh, thanks very much for that. I mean, is, he's right. Uh, but there is this sort of immediate period after the riots or after the uprising where things get worse for African-Americans. And I think it's important to note that, too. Definitely.
1: I mean, there, were, there are two sides to what happens after July 67. One that Harold gets at is that um, public officials, civic elites— They want to, as Cynic said at the time, buy riot insurance, right? And that meant um, starting to open up. Uh, sources of funding for job training, for community development, and uh, especially to open up public em- jobs to public employee jobs to African-Americans, and sometimes for the first time. Detroit's police force in 1967 was 95% white, yeah, and the city was was more than 40% African-American, yeah. right? So that changed, and that was really important. It came with a fight, for sure. I mean, that didn't happen easily. Um, the, the flip side, though, is that um, what happened in 67 led, especially— public officials and law enforcement and and many citizens, especially whites, to say, we need law and order. we have to crack down on Got lawlessness. Be tougher. Yeah. And that led, of course, to the the huge epidemic of mass incarceration and um, a really uh, uh, pernicious uh, expansion of of police powers, often over stuff that was really pretty petty that yeah. could have been handled in a different moment differently and better. yeah.
0: Okay, Tom Segrew, historian at New York University, author of *The Origins of the Urban Crisis: Race and Inequality in Postwar Detroit*. Thank you very much for being with us. On Detroit Thank you. Today. And good to see you in Detroit. Next time you come by, we'll have to have you on again. Excellent. All right, that's going to do it for me. I'll be back tomorrow. Hope you will too. This is WDET, Detroit's public radio station, a community service of Wayne State University. We'll see you tomorrow.